There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Hello, and welcome back to the Titans of Food Service Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Today, I welcome Greg Graber, the CEO of Heritage Brands. Him and I, we go into detail on his story throughout the restaurant industry. I think it's a conversation you're really going to find interesting. Let's go ahead and welcome Greg to the podcast. Greg, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I'm so excited to have you join me here today. I'm grateful that you took time out of your schedule to have a conversation, and I'm looking forward to learning your story and more about you. Thanks, Nick. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So why don't we start off with maybe can you give a little bit of your background and how you got into the restaurant industry? Yeah. Um, well, when I was growing up, I would have never thought I was going to be in the restaurant industry. I mean, my first job was <laughs> delivering pizza for Domino's when I was 17. So that nice. was back when you had to be uh, be there 30 minutes or less. So I broke a lot of traffic laws and uh, uh, then moved on. I got a little bit older <laughs> and went into uh, you know, full service, was a, was a server, like a lot of folks in our industry. And the owners kept asking me to be an assistant manager, and I kept turning them down because I couldn't take the pay cut. And uh, over time, they I don't know if they wore me down or I saw opportunity, but uh, decided to uh, jump in full force and uh, sort of move my way up the ranks. I cut my teeth on a concept called Don Pablo's Mexican Kitchen in Texas. Mm. And uh, then shortly after that, they opened their first location outside of Texas in Indianapolis. And so... My wife, Johnette, and our four-year-old son, and she was seven pregnant, seven months pregnant, and we just were packed up and moved to Indianapolis and ended up opening oh, wow. restaurants all over Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. And, and as we opened them, I kind of moved up and uh, was supervising those three states. Then moved back to the uh, back to the home office in in Texas and told the ownership it's war out there and <laughs> we were growing awful fast and we were in need of uh, some process and um, uh, some help. I trained a bunch of the managers that were out there and so they allowed me to take an op services role and I had trouble getting it all rolled out. So then I took training as well and just over time just started grabbing. Uh, different responsibilities, purchasing, marketing, uh, just different areas of the business and uh, stayed there for quite some time. And then in 2005, we moved to California to be the president of a concept called Tahoe Joe's Famous Steakhouse. It was a regional steak chain mm -hmm. and it was a wholly owned subsidiary, Buffets Inc., which turned into Ovation Brands. And after being there for a few years, I moved to the parent company as the chief operating officer and then ultimately the CEO for a few months until we got it sold off. And um, as I was out there looking for something to do, I got a phone call from uh, Randy and Deborah Brooks, who owned um, these concepts that uh, we currently own now. And we they were looking for an exit strategy, and I was looking for something to do. And they're just really wonderful people. And um, so we started Heritage Restaurant Brands in 2016. And uh, that is what I've been doing with my life the last uh I don't know if it's 20 or seven years. It seems like 
seems like a lot, but that's what I've been doing doing here recently. Yeah, yeah it's definitely a fast paced industry, as you know. Yeah. Is is this a career path that you always felt you wanted that you were going to go into, or you wanted to be in, or how did you, um, or was there something else that you wanted to do instead? You know, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I, I love uh, athletics. I love sports and uh, actually went to school for that and uh, ended up dropping out and becoming a restaurant guy. I would have never imagined that uh, I would have been in the restaurant business, but uh, I grew to love it. And uh, I'll tell you, Nick, you know, if you're competitive, this is a uh, this is a great business to be in because I can uh, at, at the micro level I can go to any table at any time and know whether we're winning or not uh, oh, just wow. by the ex- just by the expression and the and the uh, uh, the attitude uh, of our guests whether we're delivering on our promise uh, and then of course there's the opportunity to park next to somebody next door and in our business uh, when you're a small guy you can go up against the giants of the industry right across the street and compete head to head. Uh, and if you're better, you win. So I think the competitive yeah. nature of the business was really uh, enticing to me. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned you did purchasing, you did marketing, and you've done so yeah. many different aspects in the restaurant yeah. business. How did you learn how to do all of that? Trial and error. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of uh, a lot of great people along the way. And so there might be some subject matter experts in those departments, and uh, I was placed to help guide and lead them. And so I really leaned on them early on. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter in our business what what department you're running. If you exist to serve both those that serve our guests and our guests, you're going to be in great shape. And so finding faster, better, cheaper ways uh, for our managers to do their jobs finding ways to, uh, and even on the marketing side, to really uh, ferret out uh, what is the compelling piece of our business? What's the differentiator between us and the competition? How do we leverage that up and do more of what we do best instead of uh, worrying about what everyone else does? So, you know, all these departments, uh, these support departments um, work hand in hand. Ultimately, though, it leads to the table. It leads to the guest. From that operations background, being able to bring that perspective in, saying, hey, this is ultimately going to be better for our managers, um, turned out pretty well. Yeah. And I'm curious, you mentioned that if you were to go into one of your units, you can tell if you're be- essentially being successful. What yeah. are When you look at one of your concepts or just a single unit as yeah. part of one of your concepts, what, what is it that you look for in terms of success? Yeah. Uh, well, you can you can tell uh, as a consumer or as a as a brand owner or a restaurant owner, you can tell Nick when you walk through the front doors of a restaurant whether or not it has a heartbeat, whether it's mm-hmm. got a pulse, whether it's alive, and um, you know sometimes it's really hard to put your finger on it. But in general, right? I mean, there are three sort of pillars to all. Uh, restaurant business. I mean, it's the atmosphere, and that might be the music, it's the temperature, it's the lighting, it's the feel of the place, uh, certainly the food and the style of food and how that comes out and the value you're giving our guests. Um, and then the service or, uh, to put a finer point on it, hospitality. You know, there's a, there's a difference between service and hospitality. I mean, service is rote. Hospitality is a connection. It's a it's a personal interaction. I can get service from an ATM, right? But I can only get hospitality from a person. And so, when you see those things jiving, when you see, man, the place feels great, uh, the lighting's good, the music works, 
the food is exactly as it was designed to be and people are making mm-hmm. personal connections table side, that's it, right? It's hard not to win when you do those things well. Uh, right. The tricky part is doing those things well consistently. Yeah, definitely. There's By my house, there's a, a little it's a, a juice a juice shop and it's a chain. Yeah. I think they have maybe mm-hmm. two or three locations and there's a drink that my wife and I, we really like, but every time we go there, we know that it doesn't taste the same each time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're hopeful that when we go there, that it's the good one and not the bad one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a toss up. So how would you say that you maintain consistency across all of your restaurant locations. Is there a process that you have in place to ensure quality control or how do you manage sure. that? Sure. Well, it starts on the purchasing end, uh, Nick, and getting the right quality through the back door and managing that. When when we took it over in 2016, and I'll talk about our Huckleberries brand because it's really the growth, yeah. the growth vehicle. You know, first we had to know what we were selling and we took a look at, uh, you know, what is it that the consumers want? And then really engineered the menu to either maximize profitability for our franchisees or give them more, give the guests more of what we're proudest of and what we do best and what differentiates us. And once we did that, we started paring the menu down. We actually took the menu from 74 items to 54 items to give us a little bit more predictability. Once you get the predictability, then you can go to manufacturers and you can go to folks and say, listen, uh, with our growth projections and ex- we know exactly what we're selling, this is what we want to bring in the back door because it really allows you to improve quality and then doing the very best we can to utilize products as often as possible and then put very specific steps to these plate building. So you buy the right product in the back door and then you build the plate right and I think you're going to, by and large, hit the mark. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. In your journey between, you know, kind of day one to today, has there been any, have you had any like big failures or big missteps or obstacles that you've had to overcome from and that you learned from? Well, I learned a lot. Honestly, Nick, I I walked in with all the answers, uh, especially in one of the brands. (laughs) And, uh, that's a big mistake, right? And right. Uh, w- without seeking to understand first. And, uh, you know, I wasn't super familiar with breakfast. So, uh, you know, I ask a lot more questions on our Huckleberries brand and our Perco's Cafe brand for the Cool Hand Luke's, uh, which is a yep. steakhouse. I was a little bit more familiar with it. And I really failed to completely understand our guest the history of the brand and went in and sort of shot first and asked questions later and it backfired. I mean, I made some mistakes and had to eat some crow and do some apologizing and say, you know what, I should have, I should have talked to you guys first, but you know, like with anything, whether it's a, a, a bad hire or a bad mm-hmm. decision, you just fail fast and move on. I mean, you can't really dwell yeah. on it. Failing isn't bad. Uh, you, you learn a lot. It's not bad. It's only right. bad if you hang on to it. For heritage restaurant brands, do you own each of those locations or is it a franchisee model? How does it set up? Yeah, we're primarily franchised. I mean, yeah. um, uh, my partners and I have a few of the restaurants. We've got a couple of the steakhouses and, uh, and one of the Huckleberries, but it's primary, primarily a franchise operation, uh, which was a whole new learning curve for me as well. I'm very interested to learn more about that. I, in my business, you know, we're a food service broker and we cover Northern California, Southern California, and then Las Vegas as well. And 
kind of having not really a franchisee model, however, building mm-hmm. standard operating procedures across each one of our markets. Yep. So whoever, whatever client that we're working with, it looks the exact same in Northern Cal yep. as it does in uh, Los Angeles. Right. So I'm just, I, I'm curious how when a franchisee or, or when you're pitching your concept to somebody to become a franchisee, what does that look like? What's kind of the package and, and what are, do you have a standard operating procedures that you offer to them? Yeah, of course. I mean, we've got, uh, we've got, of course the operating manuals, but, uh, you know, I, I, our relationship or, or our conversation with the franchisees, I mean, it's got to start with being relational, not just transactional, Nick. And, you know, because if we're just going out there and saying, look, here's the steps, follow those, here's the manual. It just doesn't work when something like, uh, well, we experienced it with COVID <laughs> not, not too long ago, right? The pandemic. <laughs> uh, and when it hits the fan, if you don't have relationship, right, you're dead. And yeah, uh, totally. You know, uh, so it allows you then to weather, weather the storm uh, when you do that. Of course, we've got uh, operating procedures, recipes, announces, and pieces, and steps to service, and all the right. sort of build out that's necessary to get there. But in a franchisee's case, I mean, we start with the who and then the what, not the other sure. way around. Sure. And what about in terms of you, you give them the manual and then how do you hold them accountable to making sure that they stick to it? Because I see a lot of times maybe a, a, a franchise model, there might be some franchisees that like to do their own thing, start have their own items on the menu. How do you manage yeah. that? Well, uh, I'll, I'll go back to the root, which is what's coming in the back door. I mean, if you can track what everyone's yeah. buying, uh, you yeah. can really get a good sense for it. And then, uh, you know, our visits to the restaurants aren't gotcha visits at all. I mean, uh, first right. of all, when you there's some variations. If if I was going in and taking over on a, you know a chain of call it ten or fifteen restaurants, doesn't really matter of all company owned, it's a very different approach than when you're taking a, a franchise system together, right? Mm-hmm. Company owned, you gather everyone and say, here's your new plan and and you go to the races. But for for a franchise, these are these are business owners that are very successful in their own right. And so right. you find quick wins, things that uh, you know would garner their attention and things that are mutually beneficial for both sides. And over over time, when you start making good decisions for the restaurants, the uh, the conversations become much shorter because they know that we have their best interest at heart. Yes, we yeah. go visit. Um, we certainly do a lot of guest satisfaction type stuff to to make sure and mystery shops to make sure that it's all there. But uh, it starts with checking the purchasing logs, and if we know what they're yeah. buying, we know that the end result is going to be pretty good. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned COVID. <laughs> What what was that like for you? And was there a pivot that you did in that time? What, maybe like a, a, a ten thousand foot view of how that went. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was scary as heck. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, when your revenue shuts down to to zero, and uh, most of our most of our restaurants are in California, and so you know, some states were more restrictive than others. And uh, when we knew that you know that it was done, we stayed up all night. <laughs> putting in curbside delivery and what those processes look like, got on the phone with our franchisees. And one of the, one of the things I give them all the credit, uh, we made a statement that, uh, you know, we're not going to make any changes to these brands in pandemic that we're not willing to live with post pandemic. So we're not jerking the guests around or we're not jerking our employees around that, uh, you know, have to have to change. And so those changes that we made, Nick were, 
were subtle and it allowed us to emerge with brands intact, uh, which really boded well for us. You know, going through, you know, having my business in California, there was a lot of, I'd say, political intervention, especially yeah. economically, in yeah. terms of, you know, our customer base is uh, folks like yourself, the restaurants or yeah. food service operators. And it might be a casino or a college university. Mm-hmm. And when you couldn't open up your doors or it stuck to just takeout, and I'm on a commission basis, it was yeah. a hard, uh, it was a very hard year, year and a half to navigate. One thing that I found in my business is that there was a big, maybe like a boom in technology. There's mm-hmm. so much more technology we use today in 2023 than we did in 2019 and 2020. Is there new technology that you have incorporated into your operations that stem from the time of COVID till today? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, you know, delivery is a big deal because it was the deal uh, during COVID and it didn't go away. I mean, one of the one of the reasons that, uh, you know, all the brands are so so far up over over pre-COVID years is that uh, the delivery stuck and the dining room came back. And so it, right. it's just become additive to what we're doing. So, I mean, we're in the process right now of revamping our entire website, right, for our Huckleberries so that we can uh, perhaps be a little bit more advantageous and, and give our franchisees the advantage of uh, first-party delivery which would be very helpful for them. Uh, those fees really add up uh, yeah. over time. And so we're doing everything we can to mitigate their cost on the back end. Do you typically like to get set up or do you want to get set up on like DoorDash, Uber Eats, yep. uh, those types of websites? You bet. As many as many as those channels as possible. I mean, um, when it hits the fan or even in sort of an, you know, an economic downturn, you want to create a place that has as many what I'll call occasion, occasion usages as possible, whether sure. it's a quick meal or a celebratory meal or something delivery at home. We want to be good at it all, at least give give the opportunity for guests to use us in a variety of ways. Right. My, uh, my uncle, he owns a retail meat market and okay. he makes pre-made sandwiches for the local community. Uh, you know, people who come in the door, but he's not set up yet um, online. It's like a very traditional butcher shop. It's mm-hmm. been around for 40 years. And what's kind of the first step in, in how do you build it into your pricing model to get some like an online uh, platform right. that people can go on and buy? Because I keep telling him, I was like, you, you need to move online, especially he's right down the street from Cal State Fullerton, which has 20, 30,000 students. And all right. of those students, you know, especially millennials and Gen Z, they're moving digital, they're moving online. Mm-hmm. And they may not find you if, you have, if they have to walk in the door. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, first you got to face the facts that, that delivery is not going to be as profitable as, as serving someone inside your restaurant. You don't get the additional add-ons. You may not get an app or you may not get a dessert or a drink or whatever. And the fees are not there inside the restaurant and they are there sure. after, you know, outside the restaurant. But my, my wife's grandfather, uh, before he passed on, when he found out it was in the business, put his crooked finger in my face and said, Greg, volume covers everything. <laughs> and and uh, I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now, right? Where the, these incremental sales uh, that come in the door, they sure do help you with your fixed costs and they help you with your rent and the things that aren't there. So maybe the margins are skinnier, uh, but they're yeah. still there provided you can execute at a high level. I like that. I've not... I, I like that term a lot. My business is the same, you know, being a commission business, volume, you're right, covers everything. The more volume sure we can does. sell, I mean, 
the more we're going to make. Yeah, I mean, think about it in the in the heart of the house or in the kitchen in a low volume restaurant. If you lose a case of steaks, it stings for weeks. Uh, if right. you're jamming and you've got a high volume restaurant, you drop it, it hurts, but not nearly as bad. <laughs> <laughs> And then what about staying up on industry trends? How do you, how can you, how do you track consumer uh, mm-hmm. trends and, you know, especially with Gen Z and millennials now being a big part of the overall yeah. population? Yep. I mean, we partner with, um, you know, with a variety of folks out there, but, you know, these big vendors have, uh, they've got a ton of consumer research. They will tell you what's going on if you just, if you just ask them. So we utilize a lot of our vendor partners and ask them often, you know, what's going on in, in the in the consumer world? Where are things headed? And, um, you know, I would say that our brands don't want to be on the very forefront or the cutting edge of, mm. of technology because by and large, that's not our guest. And it doesn't mean that we're excluding, you know, all of these, you know, Gen Z folks, uh, far from it. But it's not the bulk of our guests. And so we can sometimes uh, get too far out in front. Um, you know, our, our, our Huckleberry's brand is, you know, breakfast is very experiential. And, sure. you know, I, I can make eggs at home or have a bowl of cereal at home. When I'm going out, you know, I want that experience. And so I, I still firmly believe that there is always going to be a place for come in, leave your brain in the glove box in the parking lot. Uh, and go into a full-service restaurant and be taken care of. Right. You mentioned Huckleberries. Your, I believe I was reading online that you have about six more locations upcoming, and I believe they're spread out across different states. I guess the, in, in most simple terms, how do you do that? Where do you start to open up new locations, and why choose those locations? Yeah, I mean, so uh, when we started in 2016, we had seven Huckleberries. Uh, we've got 31 today. And our plan is to grow 35% a year, which would get us to 100 by the end of 2026. They are primarily in California. We've got one in Nevada. We're about to open one in uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth. And, you know, Nick, in a, in a perfect world, I would just go 100 miles at a time and just slowly grow. But, I mean, sometimes you got to... You got to skip over a little bit, and a three-hour plane ride or a three-hour car ride is the same to me. Um, and so, if you find that right franchisee in that right market, uh, you know, then we're going to go there. Part of the you know the foundation setting that we did in that first eighteen months was to make sure that we're foundationally ready to grow nationally, whether that's distribution or purchasing contracts or whatever that might look like. So uh, today, it's just not really all that difficult to jump a few states and go to Texas. We just get on a plane and go. I love that. And if someone's in Texas, you know, majority of your locations are here in California, how would they find you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we opened up in, in Reno, which uh, was nobody had heard of Huckleberries. We opened up in San Diego, which was a couple of hundred miles from the nearest one. And we're about to open up in Dallas, Fort Worth. And uh, this is when you know you've got a tiger by the tail when you put a little <laughs> social media post out there and you get like 70,000 hits on it the next day and people are talking about it. I mean, I would love to take credit for that, but I can't. I mean, uh, there's right. something, whatever that is, whatever that magic is, and there's only just a few brands that, that I've ever been associated with that had that when you got going. I mean, it's the got to be the atmosphere. It's got to be the food. Breakfast and lunch are, uh, for whatever reason, people get excited about that. And we have a pretty unique niche in the space. 
So um, social media is a big, big way to do it. And, um, you know, once we get open, then we have to execute. And the way it works, someone pays up front and then they can, and then you own the real estate or do do they own the real estate? No, they would go out and find uh, really any landlord, somebody that would own the real estate. I mean, uh, okay. one of the things we did during COVID was had somebody come in, uh, a national player come in and do an evaluation of all of our sites. 10-minute drive time, the the physical makeup of our guests, the retail presence, the uh, psychographic and just all the demographic information, including their propensity to, to eat out and then specifically to eat breakfast out. And we developed a scorecard based on our top five restaurants. And that's just the science of it. The art of it is me and one of my partners will go out there with the franchisees and kick the tires on all these sites and say, well, I know what the numbers say, but it doesn't really feel right because of because of X. Uh, and so we'll try to present the very best options for our franchisees, including what it might cost to get into one of these things so they can get their their best return. Did you say you'd get a score of your top five restaurants? Yes, we, we developed, well, I called it a scorecard. It's a, it's a real a estate scorecard. scorecard, yes. So that uh, we put okay. all these metrics against the ones that do the best. And then for new sites, we would get those same metrics and compare them to see how we're doing. And if it doesn't measure up, maybe there's something else we should look at, or maybe we should go look somewhere else. Gotcha, gotcha. I- I, it's so fascinating. I, I can I can feel your the wheels turning in your head. You know, you, you have so much information, so much knowledge. If you could yep. go back, think about if you were to go back to your very first day uh, when you were working at Domino's, what would you tell yourself <laughs> at that point? With all the knowledge you have today, what would you tell yourself? I'm just curious. Um, you know, uh, I would say be aggressive. Don't be if you know. There's more than you think. Uh, you have the ability uh, to do it. And, uh, you know, half the folks out there that, that don't make it aren't trying hard enough. And uh, so I would say don't be afraid to take risk. Got it within you. Just go do it. Since COVID, you know, as we've talked about, there's so much change that has happened. Do you have a new, any new beliefs or behaviors or habits that you've picked up since that time that you use today? Nick, that that COVID brought every operator, every business owner closer to their business. Um, I got uh, much closer to the restaurants during COVID because we had to. Um, You know, there were less employees running around, less team members running around, and you had to go out there and and get very close to the business. Um, And quite frankly, it had been a while for me since I had gotten that close uh, into the restaurants. And so it was refreshing and it reminded me, uh, perhaps something of some things that I had forgotten. So uh, I'm trying to hang on to that. Yeah, definitely. And and what are some of the goals that you're pursuing now today and then into the future? Well, I think the growth rate of Huckleberry is a 35% growth rate Mm -hmm. with, uh, some of the challenges of, of, of accessing capital, out there. We got a lot of folks that are, are, are really interested. I think maintaining, uh, you hear this magic word culture, maintaining that uh, sort of big company thinking in a family company. You know yeah. what that's like, uh, where you're like, hey, we don't want to lose that personal right. touch. And so we're committed to having some personal involvement in every single restaurant uh, that opens right. up. That's going to that's gonna help us grow 
And that 35% growth rate would probably be the single biggest thing that's uh, that's going to move our needle forward. Sure. And I I have a a personal question as well. in my own yeah. business, uh, you know, being a young entrepreneur, I'm, I'm 29. Yeah. I found, you know, when we first started out, we when we were going from about from when we zero dollars to our first million dollars in that time, it required myself, the business owner, to to do a lot of things, whether it's the finances yeah. or going out and making sales or dropping off samples yeah. or marketing, whatever. I kind of did it all. But now as we get into the next stage, going from that one to 10, and we're in that evolution now, I find mm-hmm. myself, I need to remove myself from a lot of different parts of the business, not have my personal interference on in a lot of different things, because I feel like it, it, it creates a bottleneck in communication and slows down our processes. How do you manage that? I, I would imagine just the size of your business and with how many locations that you work with, that it, you can't be involved in everything in the day-to-day. So how do you manage that? Yeah, you can't. I mean, uh, so, you know, when we first started, there were like, you know, the three partners and uh, we would have just a couple of folks at the office and it was small. And so we, we wore a lot of hats and, and the bigger you get, the more subject matter experts you're able to bring in and, and let them solely focus on whatever it is, whether it's HR or whether it's purchasing. And so you got to hire right. You got to hire folks yeah. with, with the right DNA that uh, are in alignment with your values, uh, in alignment with your goals, that care for one another, um, and that care for the company. And and then you got to be willing to let go and uh, let failures happen because folks are going to fail. And uh, you got to, if it's the right person, uh, you all say this, right? Right decision, right motive, you get an A. Wrong decision, right motive, you get a B. No decision, you get an F. And uh, so, you know, just really... (laughs) giving folks a call to action. And if the motives are right, hey, we're going to make mistakes. Let's move on. Right. Right. What about your kind of your day-to-day, in your day-to-day life? What challenges do you face, whether it's on a monthly basis or a yearly basis? What are some of those challenges? What do they look like? You know, just keeping in touch with all of the, you know, our expansive team, right? I mean, the team that's, ex- sure. I, I wouldn't say it's expansive. Our team has expanded <laughs> uh, right. and it's got in there and just making sure that they have, I'll call it a compass and not a map, meaning this is the direction that we're going in. And I don't want to direct every turn, uh, but it, I am responsible for uh, making sure that everybody knows sort of where we're going. And, uh, you know, Nick, I, at, at Thirty thousand feet. With, with we named our, our company Heritage after after our family and and spiritual values, and we call it honoring the past and building the legacy for the future. And then you sort of move it down to fifteen thousand feet, and we call it serving others to build something great. And then when the rubber meets the road, it's improving the sales and profitability of our restaurants. Um, so we sort of use that as a framework for where we're headed. I love that. That is awesome. For the local high school here where I live, they have a mentorship program. Mm. And juniors at the school can sign up for the program and they get paired with mentors, people mm-hmm. that are in industries that they'd like to be in. <clears throat> and I was and I got the one kid in the school who wants to be in the restaurant business. And he his aspiration is actually to be a an owner of a restaurant chain. That's what he wants to do. Right now he's working in, in the back of kitchens and kind of learning, mm. you know, everything that there is to learn from the ground up. 
What advice would you give to somebody like him who would one day want to be like you, the CEO of a restaurant chain? Well, first of all, I'd say be careful what you ask for. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a hand, there's a, uh, you know, the, uh, on those days where you have to make those certain decisions, it can be, uh, it can be daunting, but yeah. you know, everybody wants to know how to do it. Not everybody wants to do what it takes to do it. And, uh, so my advice would be learn as much as you can, uh, mm. but take action. You know, if he's back there learning right now, that's the very best thing that he could do. I mean, our business affords anyone the opportunity to sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and uh, go get it done. And if you've got the talent and desire, you don't have to graduate from college to be a restaurant general manager. You don't have to graduate from college to be a director of operations or anything else in our business. That real life learning means something. And um, the other thing I would say is that character matters. Your, Your good character is going to win out in the long run. Uh, so be tough on standards and, um, you know, compassionate towards people and, uh, you'll be just fine. Yeah. He's also taking the path. He's working for a well-known chef here in the local mm. area. And so he's, he's getting almost like an apprenticeship watching this, yeah. uh, chef, you know, and all the creations, the way he runs the operations. Mm-hmm. Was that, did you have a little bit of that when you were, uh, going, from your start to where you are now, anybody like a mentor or people that took you under your, uh, under their wing? Oh, sure. All, all the way through. And, uh, yeah. you know, most of the time it's not one person, uh, but it's one person at that stage in life. And whether at, uh, and typically they're not five levels up, right. Where I'm right. like a, uh, you know, an assistant manager and I want to learn from the CEO. I want to learn from my general manager, and so uh, really early on at every stage, uh, there are people that you can learn from. And right. believe me, there are people you can learn what not to do too, right? Whenever I get my hands on the wheel, I will not be doing that. <laughs> that did not right. seem to right. be working out pretty well. So just, you know, pay attention. Right. Many times, Nick, when I go into a restaurant and you'll ask a server about, about a manager, they'll say, oh man, I love him or I love her. That's right. And I'll say, Why? Right? How come? (laughs) And a lot of times they can't put their finger on it. They're just like, you know what? I don't know. But when she's here, things just seem to run better. And what she does is she doesn't plan her next steps. She plans the next three steps. So she's always thinking ahead during the shift. What can I do to make things easier for my team to do their jobs? And that is sort of um, you know a learned experience. I watched a lot of people over my career do yeah. that do that very thing. Yeah, definitely. I read an interesting book in 2022. I think it was I believe it was called Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. I don't know if you've ever mm. heard of this book before. Yes. And he was the founder of concepts like uh Shake Shack. Right. And he said a, a big part of his success is when a consumer comes in and feels like that restaurant or that location is their restaurant, like they own yeah. it and they have, you know, yeah. they have rapport with the management and they, and the, and the staff and the, you know, they invite their friends. It's almost like, like they own the place. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, when you think about Nick with you and your, you and your wife, right there, you have yeah. a very small subset of restaurants that you go to for a particular occasion. If it's a nice dinner out or if it's something quick, we are really creatures, consumers are creatures of habit. 
And they're going to go yes. to a place where they feel warm, where they feel, you know, welcome, where they feel important, even that they might have some input. And regular guests are way less costly when you make a mistake because they're so much yes. more forgiving. Uh, a first time guest, when I screw it up, man, I'm giving them the farm because I want to come back. <laughs> Somebody, you know, if I've, if I've known you, if I've known you and you've been coming in for five years and I overcook your steak, I'm like, Hey Nick, sorry about that. Got another one coming. And you're like, Hey, no problem. So those yeah, relationships yeah. that you build work both ways. Yeah, definitely. That, that, I totally get that. Um, what do you see as the future of the restaurant industry in terms of new concepts coming along or maybe consumer preferences changing? What do you feel is on the horizon? Well, I mean, I think you've seen uh, lots and lots and lots of people dabble with these ghost kitchens that are, right. are really virtual brands. Uh, that are out there, but they really seem to they really seem to come and go. And I think that the restaurants and the restaurant tours that are able to really identify their their strengths, identify their points of differentiation, and not be swayed or tempted to go out there and try twenty five different things. Just do what you do best. Look at Chick Fil A. Right. Look at In and Out. I mean, there are several out there that, uh, and yeah. maybe brands won't be that myopic, but there are certain things that you do best. Uh, and, and I think the ones that are going to survive or really have a good sense uh, of who they, who they are. That might be a cutting edge concept. That might be somebody right. that uh, does something, but they're going to do it better than anyone else. Uh, when you try to be sort of all things to all people, you're not very good yeah. at any of them. I heard a quote one time. It, it went something like, "Make the main thing the main thing." You know, yeah. Simplify your approach. You don't have to go out and do a million different things. I was yep. recently in a entrepreneurial group, and in the group, people were saying, "Well, this is my business. This is what I do." But I also want to offer this, 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 and this. And you kind of yep. start to lose that focus, and mm -hmm. you become a jack of all trades, master of none, and you kind of dilute right. your efforts. Yeah, I used to uh, work for somebody that told me the difficulties in the simplicity. And, uh, you know, what he, what he meant by that was, you know, or the way I took it was the stop doing lists are more important mm -hmm. than the to-do list. And uh, that's actually part of my job, uh, to be honest, is to make sure that we're just staying on track and not veering too far off. The bigger you get, the more ideas start pouring in. And again, I'll use that compass uh, that that sort of true north. If I have a, a map to Detroit and I'm going, I'm in Miami. It doesn't matter. It doesn't help. But you can always know where north is, no matter where you're at. And so, my job is to kind of keep us focused on on what our true north is. I like that. What about looking far into the future? When you look back, when you're all said and done, <laughs> is there something which I know is way off in the future? Um, is there something that you'd want to be remembered for? Maybe something personal and something professional. Personal, it starts with uh, my wife, Johnette, and uh, our four children and our two grandchildren. I'll say so far because we're ready for some more. Um, you know, that's <laughs> that's what matters. I mean, it, it, yes. it really does. Is that you know, on the personal side, that uh, that I lived a life that uh, was full of character and and really cared for my family and, and for other people. On on the on the professional side, if somebody would look back and say, you know what, because of your presence, I had opportunity, I had the ability to go out and uh, you know make something of myself, 
whether that's being a franchisee or being a restaurant manager or being a director of operations or fill in the blank. If they said, I saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves and we were able to bring it out, that would be pretty gratifying. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that that would be a very satisfying feeling. I, I could definitely resonate with that. Well, Greg, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining me here on the Tides of Food Service podcast. I really appreciate you being vulnerable and going in depth about your journey. I definitely, I, I say this, that I didn't realize when I started this podcast how much I would learn by, by interviewing mm-hmm. people who are successful or gotten to the top of what they do or even on their way to uh, being successful. And I, I took away so many different nuggets from our conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking time and, and coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah.